Welcome back to Want to Ride with Rupert Guinness and Aaron S. Lee. I'm Aaron S. Lee. And you guessed it, I'm Rupert Guinness. And we are coming to you once again from the Lord Dudley Hotel here in the eastern suburbs of Wallara in Sydney, Australia. We had a bit of a hiatus. We were, we were both away the month of July. We had... We had plans, good intentions, to come to you weekly while we were both uh, away. I was in China at the Tour of Qinghai Lakes. I, I drew the Asia Tour car, and of course, uh, Rupert Guinness always gets the Tour de France. So he was there, busy in Paris. And, and listen, um, we, we didn't get a chance to, to bring the episodes to you the way we wanted to, but we are back, uh, and hopefully back on course for the rest of the year. And uh, we're recording live again from our favorite haunt. Yeah, we certainly are, Aaron, and it uh, sounds like... Uh We've both got a you know, myriad of stories to tell over the next episodes because we're not going to get them all done in this episode. But, you know, from judging from what you're just saying, you know, you've had some pretty exciting times there in China. I know there's a lot of stuff that happened in, uh, in the Tour de France, but, uh, you know, Wild West tactics uh, don't only occur in the Tour de France, do they? No, they don't. Actually, the Tour of Qinghai Lake, uh, 2.HC, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a great race, uh, two-week Kind of the, the fourth grand tour, so to speak. It's a 13-day stage race with a rest day, so 14 days in total. Um, it's kind of what the, they, they, the prototype of what they discussed the Giro and the Vuelta being. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's interesting, you know, because they are talking about whether the, the Grand Tour should, should cut back a week. I guess you also got other events, maybe like Tour of Switzerland, sort of 10 days. But, you know, for any riders, we know, uh, you know a lot of riders can race for one week. They can race for 10 days. But when you get to that two-week, point that's a pretty much a stretching point for young developing riders and maybe for some older riders at the end of their careers so uh interesting it'll be interesting to hear you know hear from you as to how those guys uh handle the two weeks and also the ancillary sort of uh pressures upon them so to speak uh, absolutely well, you know one of the great things about that race is it it's an extreme elevation the average elevation around that race is around four thousand meters above sea level so not a lot of chance of recovery for these boys. And what I thought was going to be a cruisy two weeks, uh, by the time you get there pre-race, you stay there post-race, it ended up being a full three and a half weeks. So um, I thought I was getting the upper hand and getting, getting back a week earlier over you. But uh, that being said, it was a grueling three and a half weeks, but not as much as you being away for an entire month in July. And, of course, what everyone wants to talk about, the Tour de France. Yeah, well, I mean, it was... Uh... One thing I love about the Tour de France is like every year you go there, um, you can think, how do you do it every year for so many years? But every year is different. And uh, I thought this year's race was a fabulous race. It was, uh, it had um, thrills and spills uh, in the race and out of the race as well. Um, there was no shortage of content to write about and to talk about. And uh, um, obviously at the end of the day, Chris Froome from uh, Team Sky won his second tour, uh, but he didn't win it easily. You know, he was pretty much at the end of his tether in the last two days in the Alps there, and uh, he was pretty happy to get to Paris. As he was happy, but also relieved, and his team, you know, had uh, had to work for it. It wasn't as it was convincing how they won it, but it wasn't like a fait accompli. Now, uh, obviously, I had only a chance to, to watch the tour through clip bits while I was in China. Had a chance when I came back to Australia to watch that final week. We had mentioned on the last episode just how deep. A feel this Tour de France was and how many contenders. I think we had said four, maybe five with TJ Van Garderen, who actually showed quite well before he unfortunately had to pull out um, later in the race, but uh, did the race live up to the hype? Well, 
I believe at the end of the day it did because I think it would be naive to expect that, uh, say, if you look at those five riders, you know, the, you know, the, the four, you know, uh, Vincenzo Nibali, Chris Froome, Alberto Contador, uh, Nero Quintana and TJ Van Garderen, they weren't all going to get there without some incident or some uh, uh, injury or some misfortune impacting their race. It's not, that was not going to happen. You mentioned misfortune happening yeah. in the race. It seemed like that first week was yeah. a war of attrition. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, the, the first week of any Tour de France is always nervous because every rider is, uh, basically every rider is at their top form, they're rested, every team's strong. You've got nine riders to a team. And it, because it is the biggest race in the world, everyone's trying to win early to settle the calm, to calm the nerves for the, for the rest of the race. So there's only so much space on those narrow roads, particularly up in Holland and in Belgium and stuff, that, that riders can go. So it's inevitable there's crashes. Um, you know, and obviously Quintana, who ended up finishing second at just a minute and a half behind Froome overall, you know, he lost time early. He was one of the many victims of that uh, Stage 2 crash, that mass pile-up on the Stage 2 Zeeland and... Uh, he, um, you know, but he always said he was going to make his move in the Alps, and he certainly did. And I think the fact that he still ended up um, really pressing Froome, particularly on stage 19 and then stage 20 to Alpes um it certainly laid the platform, I think, for a really interesting race next year. I think we saw interesting with Contador. He was fairly ragged. You know, he was pretty tired after that Giro d'Italia, which was a lot harder for him to win than... Um, I think maybe many people gave him credit for. He's not as young as he used to be. No, really. no, and his team too. He had five guys. There's five guys from Tinkoff Saxo were uh, backing up for the tour, and uh, you could see that sort of just, you know, they were pretty tired. And 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 you know what? That's refreshing to see that because if they weren't tired, you'd be maybe a bit more sceptical about performances. So I thought it was reassuring. And look, just the uh, the other guys, Nibali. He obviously wasn't on the same form that he was, and if he was going to make time. He's going to have to make it early. Everyone knew that. And when, he, when they got out of that first week and he hadn't made time, he, his back was already against the wall. And he could see that rivalry. The rivalry between Nibali and Froome is not a sporting rivalry. There's a dislike between those two guys, you know. Well, we were hearing we were hearing some about some of that dislike even in Qinghai Lake in China. Yeah, wow. uh, some of that bad those bad intentions and the, and the bad relations. Uh, one of the things on the second stage of Qinghai Lake, we had a, uh, a disastrous stage finish where a lot of races. I, I think a lot of the riders, three, uh, I'd say almost seems like a quarter of the peloton went down that day. That same day, the Tour de France had a disastrous stage, which pretty much wiped out the majority of Orica Green Edge. Yeah, it did. Took out three of their nine riders, and not just three riders. It was three top caliber riders: Simon Gerrans, Daryl Impey, and um, uh, Michael Albacini. You know, I mean, there were three crucial guys to that. The experience between those three guys, uh, the potential for stage wins from those three guys, and um, and everything, and so very much left. Uh, and also, uh, you could sort of say a fourth guy in many ways, Michael Matthews. He was absolutely busted, you know, but he, he managed to still finish a, a tour, which I think the Michael Matthews of maybe a year ago may not have finished the tour that he did now. So he didn't get a stage win, but him getting through that finish in Paris was a massive... I, I count that as a victory. Well, any questions about Michael Matthews' toughness from last year when he had to... Forego the Tour de France because of a wrist injury just two or three days prior uh, to the race. Definitely, he erased all doubts. Yeah, exactly. And I'll give him credit also. He fronted up to talk to the media. I don't, you know, like 
he, I remember one day he got off his bike and they all sort of had to help him get off. And then he had the wobbles and they sort of had to hold him by his elbows. And I thought, oh, he's not going to talk now. And he did. He stopped and had a chat. It wasn't the most expansive chat. It wasn't back slapping and rib tickling because his ribs were really sore. But I could saw he had, was actually had his hand over his ribs when he was trying to talk. He actually had trouble breathing while he was doing an interview. And I'm thinking, holy crap, this bloke's do, doing an interview while his ribs are absolutely, you know, if they weren't broken, they were yeah, bruised, just as painful, you know. And I like, this guy is, you're seeing, you're seeing this guy, the toughness of this guy evolving, which was great to see, you know, and uh, really excited about him in the future now. It seemed like a lot of the conversation uh, about the Tour de France this year was revolving around Team Sky, but also revolving one Team Sky rider and an Australian, Richie Port. <laughs> yeah. Our friend Richie Port, eh? <laughs> you think back to uh, Two Down Under. Oh, you know? absolutely, yeah, yeah. You think of the journey he's had this season, oh, you know? And, yeah, or uh, even before with the with the Australian Nationals, yeah, uh, where he won the time trial. Yeah, yeah, it seems ages ago, doesn't it? But yeah. I mean, and it's, yeah, it's almost back around the corner. Yeah, and even as he, he, you reminded me during the tour, he said, "Well, his year began in October when he started training, you know, for the national titles, and he had to, you know, he beat a world hour record holder in Rowan Dennis, who." won a stage and got the yellow jersey in the tour. But, you know, uh, Richie's, um, you know, Richie's tour was certainly one of, uh, you know, there's all the speculation of him uh, uh, leaving Sky, which has been confirmed, and, and, and speculation he's going to join BMC, which has been confirmed. Which now he joins which, Rowan Dennis. Which he now joins Rowan Dennis, and he's also got Campbell Flakemore yeah. on that team, and uh, Alan Piper is their sporting uh, high-performance director. Yeah, you're not wearing your BMC jumper today. No, uh, no, I can't wear it every day. Fair enough. <laughs> Still drinking a, a rosé. Well, we oh, a, a beautiful rosé today, actually. Yeah, we're drinking a French rosé, a Chateau Riotour from Côte de Provence. Uh-huh. As you do. Did we, you get that in China? Did you get the rosé <laughs> No, we didn't get anything like that in China. As a matter of fact, we would be hard-pressed to find anything cold to drink in China really? whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. No, but there were some stores that would tease us <laughs> and have cold drinks in a, or what would typically be soft drinks or whatnot, or even a beer or two, yeah. and have it in a cooler, but the cooler was never plugged in. So it was... Uh, oh, that's funny. Yeah. They, uh, however, if you ask nine of the ten people that we would, we, would, we would question in China, do you prefer your drinks refrigerated or not, they all said refrigerated. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious as to why it's not sweeping the country. Jeez, that was no. a big country and there's a lot of people. No, we, we talked about Richie. Yeah. It was great to see not only the fact that he performed so well, and again in that super domestic role, but there were some questions going in when the rumors were still just swirling mm-hmm. about who his allegiances would be to, to, to his Team Sky or perhaps BMC and yeah. TJ. Um, as we mentioned earlier, but he erased all those doubts, of yeah. course, in, in helping, uh, very much so, helping Froome win his second title. Yeah, look, he, uh, when he started the tour, he knew there was going to be speculation about that. And I was also doing, a, a, you know, helping him um, a bit with his uh, diary that he wrote for his daily diary for Fairfax Media. And he, um, you know, he, he, he was totally aware. I mean, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to be aware that that speculation was going to be around him. But he was you know adamant that he wanted to make sure that you know that he he wasn't just lip service his commitment to to uh, to Chris Froome was just lip service he really really meant it now in that first week uh, he actually you know he lost some time in that first week I know a lot of people were wondering couldn't get their heads around how he suddenly lost like an hour early and um, you know I sort of explained to those people his role going into the tour was not the role that he had going to the Giro where he was a leader going to the tour to, as a leader 
you've, you've got to be at the front. You can't afford to lose time. You've got to, you know, seconds count, not just minutes. When they suddenly see Richie uh, in his role as the wingman and suddenly him sitting up and, uh, you know, losing 20 minutes in the stage and suddenly he's an hour and a half down or whatever, people go, what's gone wrong with Richie? His specific job was to get through that first week uh, injury-free and safe, like with a leader like Chris Froome, and he really his job was to be there for the Alps. They needed someone strong in the Alps, and I think when you see the performance of how the team and how the two unravelled, if Richie wasn't as strong as he showed to be, uh, as well as Walter Pulse, who was uh, you know they, he came strong at the very end. Those two riders came really strong in those last two or three days, um, and that uh, I think made him you know I could say would go as far as it. it it, it possibly saved the tour for Chris Froome, that strategy. I know Richie was down on himself during the two middle cups of the tour when he started to get a bit sick, but a lot of people were getting sick. But he, I remember he said in one of his diaries that it was, he said he felt really bad when he'd be sitting on the team bus and he knew he couldn't do anything today because he's sick. And uh, whereas the other guys were strong for their part of the tour where they had to lift and he felt a bit sort of... Uh, sort of left out, not left out, but I mean, you know, when you know you can't, you should be, you feel you should be strong today and you can't be strong and, and, and he felt a bit down on himself for that, uh, but he is a hard marker on himself, we know that, you know, he always does it, but anyway, the fact is he came through strong when it had to happen. And, and, and I'm thinking about stage 20 particularly oh, out the west, and, and what an amazing stage that was, we saw Ryder Hagendahl ride his guts out. Oh yeah, yeah. Ryder doing what he does. <laughs> he ride the bike, yeah. and we also saw the Yates twins doing a phenomenal job being in the mix in the final climb amongst the greatest climbing cyclists in the world. Yeah, and it wasn't just a one-off, they were doing it each, each yeah. day, they were sort of like one-off, one-on, you know, but you know what? They're young guys, these, these guys. And, and the interesting thing about them is, you know, uh, afterwards people say, oh, you know, great ride, Simon, or great ride, Adam, you know, today. And they're not happy with their sevens or eights. They go, well, I came here to win a stage. Yeah. And they're not, that is not, we talk about lip service. That's not lip service. I was talking to, uh, to uh, Jack, Dan Jones, who we know, our friend from Backstage Pass. Absolutely, who's been on the show before. Yeah, just had his birthday. Happy, Happy birthday, birthday Dan. Dan. The old bugger. <laughs> and he, uh, he was just saying, he's still amazed. He says, yeah. oh, yeah, I want to go up and say, oh, good ride. They go, what, what for? I didn't win. You know, they do, and hence we saw San, classic of San Sebastian the week after. Adam Yates got up with the win. Yeah. That's what they expect of themselves, and chapeau, I think. Uh, and, and not to... Gloss over Chris Froome's accomplishment. Again, an amazing race over a brutal Tour de France. Uh, Christian Prudhomme, those guys put on one classic of a Tour de France this year. But going back to the Rowan Dennis, he obviously he's been on a bit of a Cinderella story this year. Um, again, you mentioned the, the slipping into the yellow jersey and, and whatnot. Just an amazing rider, and he has just grown exponentially over the over this last year. And how is that dynamic going to be between him and Richie? Because I'm sure a lot of the listeners want to know where these two guys fit yeah, in. Yeah, I like that word exponentially. Yeah, I probably said I was going to use that yeah. anyway. I remember that next time, next episode. That's my word. Um, I reckon. Look, I think it's. I think they still see, and I think still Rowan sees himself as a work in progress. So Richie's time is like now you know particularly he's on a one-year contract with BMC and he's you know he's 30 he'll be 31 next year he knows I think the team knows this is now or never now or never 
Yeah, you know, or the next two years at least. But you know, that's that's the pressure that Richie's put himself under. Way to give yourself a little bit of a cushion there. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, yeah, myself, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. You know, I'm not going to take all that pressure on. No, 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 no. no that's Richie's pressure. Maybe, maybe two years. Now or never. <laughs> no, no, two years. But I mean, Rowan is is a work in progress. Um, but is he a three week rider? Is look, he... I know. I think he can be. Wow. We don't know for sure yet. Big difference, though, isn't it? The big difference because there will come a time because we, we you know, like for example, we we did. You know, we don't want to get too ahead of ourselves. We I remember, you know, we were talking about, you know, Cameron Meyer. You know, whether he's, he could be a Grand Tour contender. And then, to Cam, to Cam's credit, he never said I can be a Grand Tour contender. He said, I think he's always said I need to first get through to try and win and do well in one week races, and I've got to work towards ten and two two week races. You know, so, you know, he he hasn't sort of. It's not like he's been championing himself in that front. Although he did express some ambition to do that. That's I think that's uh, admirable of any cyclist who wants to do that. But I think I think Rowan, you know, he has declared he wants to go down that path for the Grand Tours. I think it was uh, the way he took on this year's Tour. He had target marks. He had the Stage One time trial, ticked the box. He got the yellow jersey. Okay, he didn't he didn't hold the jersey for much longer, or not at all after that day. But then his next important phase was to ride strongly in the team time trial. They won the team time trial, ticked the box. Uh, his next phase was to um, obviously recover and then try and be strong support for TJ Van Garderen. Van Garderen's um, uh, tour obviously ended with his abandon. And, um, uh, but it was interesting that Rowan then, you know, he's always I've kept in touch with him regularly. He was always candid to say that, you know, when he was feeling, you know, pretty tired and, you know, uh, you know on the limit or whatever. Um, but interestingly, he finished his tour in that breakaway on the Champs-Élysées, and he was the last man standing with the breakaway on the final lap. He obviously finished strong, in his element, on his own. You know, like, but I thought, what a way to bookend his tour. He, he won stage one. Stage 21, after all the ups and downs and everything he'd challenged himself through, up until was it less than a lap, he was leading the tour on the Champs-Élysées. I mean, he, he's got something there. It's definitely got maybe a pay rise coming up in his future. (laughs) I'm sure sure he's thinking of that, and his manager. Absolutely. Look, we're gonna we're gonna take a short break. We're gonna come back and talk more of the Tour de France. I think you've got you caught up with one uh, Matty White, the sports director for Orca Green Edge. You've got a special interview later uh, with a with a Wallaby legend. Yes, well, uh, well, uh, the current Wallabies captain Stephen Moore, who uh, spoke to him just on uh, leading into the first Bledisloe Cup test, which was in Sydney, and then they're going on to their next uh, uh, second Bledisloe Cup game over in Eden Park in uh, New Zealand uh, next week. And um, and then, um, but the interesting about Stephen Moore, he's got some interesting insights about cycling and Richie Port and what he drew from this year's Tour de France that could possibly inspire the Wallabies as they go into the World Cup later this year. Oh, I can't wait to hear. We'll have more of that and more water ride right after this.
Rye with Rupert Guinness and Aaron S. Lee, and we are coming to you on the Australian Broadcasting Media Network, along with Radio Sydney, here in our favorite haunt. We're back in Sydney at the Lord Dudley Roof. We've got a glass of rosé here. Cheers, buddy. Cheers. It has been a long month of July. A good mm. month of July. As I take my sip of the beautiful rosé, which is from where, Rupe? From... Cote de Provence. Yeah, which in I France. <laughs> did you bring that back with you from the tour? No, I wish I could say I did bring it back. I did actually purchase this one. And I just noticed that bottle is empty, and I think it's my shout. So <laughs> we'll make this segment very quickly. Yeah, hurry up, will you? <laughs> but we were talking about, obviously, the Tour de France. You were at the Tour de France in July. I was at the Tour of Qinghai Lake in China. Um, a lot happened in the month of July. A lot happened while we were away. I, I, I saw in the papers while we were away that, that Mick Fanning, a three-time oh. World Tour champion surfer from the ASP, yeah. almost, well, was attacked, almost eaten by a great white shark in Jeffreys Bay, South Africa. Unbelievable, wasn't it? I just... Uh you know, uh, How many times did you watch the video? I watched it I probably, watched it. I accounted for about 20 of those 20 million views. Yeah, and what about, there's, you know, if you see the video when, when the waves, when he sinks behind the wave and, and the live commentary, commentary team have just realised what has happened and everyone's waiting to see what happens when he reappears. And, uh, and um, you know, the guy he was competing against uh, in, the, in that final, I mean, he was, he sw- he sw- you know, paddled towards him. Let's say it's Kelly Slater, because it usually is. No, it wasn't <laughs> Kelly Slater. <laughs> I feel ashamed. I can't remember the name off the top of my mind right now. But anyway, it was, it was, it was such an incredibly, it was just an amazing story in so many ways. And, and I, was, I watched some footage the other day, um, uh, some background footage of, of when uh, Mick Fanning came back off the beach, you know, and obviously he's gone through that state of shock. And then he's gone through that state of elation and almost like laughing about it. Then suddenly when people, he sees people that are, um, you know, teary-eyed because they've realised how close he was. And then it's suddenly you see this this emotion suddenly overwhelm him. I mean, the, the, the shift of emotions that he went through. And then finally the realisation that he'd, uh, you know, he was, he was very lucky to have escaped alive, let alone, you know, uh, not even being bitten. I mean, it's... Um, I still, I still can't believe it when I think about it. Yeah, you know, and, and look, we, I'll say this only because we know that he is safe and sound and everything. Exactly. Yeah, all right. Yeah. But, but I don't think that I've ever seen in any other sport any chances of a competitor being eaten alive. No, I actually thought when the Tour de France was on and I saw, you know, when uh, riders, uh, Richie Port got punched in the ribs and Sky Riders got spat on and Chris Room had urine thrown at him. But a shark? Fighting you when you're trying to compete in the event that you're making a business out of. That's that's as extreme as it gets. Well, we were very thankful that Mick made it out yeah, safely yeah, yeah. for sure. We'd like to maybe get Mick on the show uh, for a future That'd episode and, and, and talk about that event. Also, 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 I'd just like to wish him well in his comeback. You know, uh, absolutely. It's, it's not easy just to compartmentalise uh, an incident by that. I mean, there's there's ongoing issues for and not just for him, for other people who are around him in the circle and the surfing community. You know, you bring up a really good point. Uh, you up this year's Tour de France seems to be uh, the term soccer hooligan has been in vogue for quite a few years. It seems like now there's a new term that should be coined for a cycling hooligan, so to speak. It was, it was a, the crowd is getting a little bit too close to the rider, so to speak. Yeah, look, I think, you know, obviously we all know one of the unique things of cycling is that is the intimacy or how close the fans can get to it. And, and the riders actually know that as well. I mean, even when there are, have been incidents in, say, past years, 
you know, quite often, I remember talking to Mick Rogers about it a couple of years ago when he won the stage, uh, um, one of the stages in the, in the mountains in the Giro, and uh, there was an incident there where a rider, even uh, a spectator even put his hand on his handlebar, which you can imagine when you're trying to, when you're riding up a mountain. Um, and, he, and Mick, to his credit, was balanced enough to say, yeah, it, of course it, it infuriates you at the time, but one of the great things of our sport is, is the fan can be that close to us. But there is a very fine line to what's right and what's wrong. Now, what I've noticed in the last few years is, um, and this is not the majority, as always in these situations, it's the minority, even though the minority can look like a lot of people in the tour. Um, it's, it's, it's an increasing element of a booze culture on the Tour de France. I know we're having a glass now, but we're talking about... This is between sen- I just, yeah. <laughs> I just yeah, yeah. got tongue-tied. Yeah. The difference between sensible drinking yes. and yes. and uh, a booze culture, and I, and I like to, yeah, everyone knows I like to go out and have a good time too. But a guilty as charged. Guilty as charged. I don't want to be a hypocrite or sound like a hypocrite, but uh, when, when, when there's safety concern with athletes and also other spectators as well, uh, I think the sport or the people, everybody involved in the sport just has to take stock of what they're doing, what, how they're showing their enthusiasm, uh, and perhaps sort of rein in a little bit of uh, what are either perceived or genuine prejudices. Um, it's a sports event. It's meant to be a sport. Is meant to be a platform where we escape the uh, pressures of life, not to enhance it. But we've seen this with the Adam Goods booing situation in no, AFL football. And no, absolutely. And you know, there's a you watch the Dutchman corner and you, you see the riders ride through that. That melee, that that frenzy yeah. of crowd that that are doing a, a lot of times, a lot of sport, and I think their intentions a lot of times are good. We mm. just you just mentioned a couple times where they they haven't been so yeah. on the up and up, but but for those riders to continue to, to to do their job in a professional manner, hats off to them because I'd be hard pressed to do my job uh, if I had that type of that 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 frenzy. Well, around all me. all your Aaron S. Lee. Fans out there, if they were if they were sitting around you while you're writing the story, yeah. and you've got ten minutes to go to file another six hundred words, yeah. and they were screaming around you, drinking, prodding you, yeah. spitting at you, yeah. punching you in the ribs, uh, it'd be quite hard. But I, I reckon think, you'd have. Well, I think I, 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 I like to think enough. so. Listen, I, I think of those two fans being my mother <laughs> and my little girl. My little girl's underage, so I don't have to worry about her. Um, <laughs> I could I could distract her easily. My mother, I'm not so sure. And mother, I, I say this with love. If you're listening. <laughs> Which I know you are. That's a mother's, that's a mother's <laughs> right. We all know that. Well, listen, we're going to take another quick break. When we come back. We've got a couple of interviews. Uh, Roop has uh, been out on the field and he's gathered for us and, and to our treat. So we're going to come back in a few seconds and uh, have more. Oh, oh, what a ride. What a ride.
And we are back with more What a Ride with Rupert Guinness and Aaron Esley. Uh, we're we're going to talk more about Tour de France. We, we got some great interviews lined up that Rupert has gathered for us. But first, we want to talk a little bit about triathlon. We're going to make that transition, um, yeah. so to speak. And we've got our, our good friend, Phil Rockna, publisher, editor, first off the bike. Rupert, we always love having Phil on the, on, the, on the call. We certainly do. I sort of feel like calling him King. Cabana. Oh, I do, and that's a great segue yeah. because obviously triathlon, Olympic qualifications in Rio for Rio just happened last weekend. Let's get Phil on the line. Phil, as always, welcome to What a Ride. Glad to have you back on board, mate. Hey, yeah, boys. Uh, fantastic. Hey, listen, there's been so much talk about cycling in July with the Tour de France. We may have overlooked some triathlon. Mate, bring us, bring us up to speed because I understand there were some Rio qualifiers, the Olympics Rio, said, um, over the weekend. It was interesting. The, uh, the Rio test event uh, went ahead, and, and normally they do this year out. the same in London where they go, let's go and take a look and re- do a reconnaissance on the course. The, the mail out of the course, boys, was that it is a tough one. There's a climb there. And it is going to suit somebody who's got a little bit of adventure in them. I mean, the, you know, at the moment, Glenn Jorgensen and Javier Gomez and possibly Alistair Brownlee basically are, are your three choices of, of victors there. But, you know, someone like a Flora Duffy or someone who's got a little bit of uh, go in them may be able to uh, get off the front and actually uh, try and get a bit of a break on, uh, on the rest because the course is conducive to uh, someone attacking off the front. Uh, Phil, I've got to ask you, Gwen Jorgensen, the American, her 12th win in a row, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, if you count in her ITU World Triathlon Series wins, can she be stopped? Not really, I don't think so. I think she's just got to show up and breathe and she'll win this one. It's, uh, because she's got two things going for her, A, she's got blistering speed off the bike, but also she's got this uh, mental toughness and uh, I guess a shadow over the rest of the field. It's like when Marinda Carfrey goes and races in Kona, you know, she got 14 minutes up the road, the rest of the girls last year in Kona, and Carfrey still ran them down. And same with Jorgensen. If she's in that lead group, all those girls are going to be looking around at each other just going, well, we're in some serious trouble here. And it would take a minor miracle for Jorgensen not to stroll away with the gold medal. However, in saying that, we always got to say it with a bit of an asterisk, don't we, boys? The fact that, you know, this is sport, anything can happen, uh, and uh, not always... Actually, Phil, um, you, you mentioned the asterisks and how the, the potential for anything to happen. And also you mentioned about how you feel that maybe the, on the bike course someone could, uh, could attack. Could, could that lead to a possibility of someone who's not even in the frame of favouritism willing to, and who may realise that normally they wouldn't normally be a favourite, but they could just risk everything and just get away with the race and, and, and not steal it, but just uh, come from the dark and, uh, and take it away? Yeah, Barcelona. Yeah.
with Emma Snowsill. Uh, last uh, Olympics, everyone picked Brownlee and just uh, you couldn't get a bet on him. But now, I guess with Jorgensen and that course, I think they've actually added a, a little bit of a dimension to it. And, and they would have to. I mean, a flat course is just, it's not exciting. And, and the ITU format, the two-hour format, guys, was built for the Olympics. When they originally wanted to put it in, they said, we need a product that can be packaged inside of two hours. And that's essentially what they got. They've got to make it at some point you know, uh, a race that's going to hold more speculation than just uh, rolling around for for a few laps and then getting off for a ten k run with wet hair. And of course, Jorgensen's <laughs> yeah. And of course, Jorgensen's not the only dominant figure in the ITU at the moment. Obviously, for the men's side, uh, one Mr. Javier Gomez. He's the best triathlete in the world, hands down. I don't mean, put anyone up to him. You know, I would say between him and Daniela Riff at the moment as to who's the best triathlete in the world. For mine, it's Gomez because. Gomez can win a 70.3 world title off the back of an ITU world title. That's what he did last year. He still is the most uh, versatile athlete in the triathlon sphere by far. There's no one getting near him, and he's a guy who's, again, just doing what he needs to do to, uh, to get it right. And he was, again, on song in Rio. Yeah, he, got the, he got the win. Uh, he's had a, a little bit of an up-and-down season, but, boys, there, there is no one who gets it right more often. Than, uh, than Gomez and, and Brownlee's at the moment struggling with uh, injury and all that kind of thing and Mole is not really uh, you know too consistent and Richard Murray's been okay we saw Vincent Louis doing okay but they're not they're just not the force that Gomez is and uh, he swims beautifully he bikes like a machine and uh, as we've seen in that 70.3 world title last year he's got the endurance to, to run hard and, and run that sub you know 30 and a half to down to the, the sub 30 which is uh, and of course, you mentioned the Brownlee struggling a bit with a bit of injury and fatigue. Obviously, Alistair finishing tenth in the field. He he cited uh, the heat, twenty five degree days, uh, to be a factor. And of course, Johnny not racing due to injury. But yet, one Australian, Aaron Royal, finishes I think sixth or seventh. Correct me, but he punches his ticket to Rio. This is a really good story. We uh, we know both pretty well on first off the bike, and we've had a number of conversations with him. And uh, this is a really good story, and a good story for two reasons. A, because he got his ticket early, which is nice. Now he gets to set up and plan his season next year. It's so valuable to be able to plan your season, to pick the races you want to do, to go to the to, you know to, to be having some you know have some misses, but it's okay. He can tinker with his form. Uh, the other reason it was good is for Triathlon Australia finally got their selection policy or part of it to a point where they said if you uh, you know get this result then you can have a spot on the team and they made it black and white and athletes understand that athletes don't understand discretionary picks I don't think anybody understands discretionary picks it's the lamest thing I've ever heard but TA still has that going but the fact that we've got Aaron Royal in is a win because it was clear cut it was black and white it was get this result and you get in you can't dispute that Athletes know time, they know place, they don't really understand anything else. And this is where this is where it's really important that uh, uh, he got the opportunity to actually go for that spot and not be muddied by any discretionary picks or anything that TA uh, has brought to the table uh, recently in recent times. So that's a, a nice change. And, and TA needs to now just make every single team spot uh, win and you're in situation rather than a discretionary pick. They've shown how easy it can be done. So is it, now that Royal's got his spot, you know, set in place, and, and obviously, as you said, he's being able to plan his his camp, his year ahead now. What if you're um, steering him? What areas of his race does he have to, has to work, have to work on 
And I mean, is he a medal contender, or is that too early to even even contemplate that? Because I guess the old cliche of cream rising to the top come next yeah, year. Yeah, that certainly will happen. Brownlee was an anomaly. With Arvo, what Brownlee brought to Rio, he just went there to take a look at it. Uh, he's definitely a contender. Uh, obviously, he's someone who is going to cast a huge shadow for Royal. You know, it's the run. It all comes down to the run. In triathlon now, it's, you know, Ironman, we're sort of skewing a little bit to the bikers. But in ITU, it's how well you run. I mean, they get off in these enormous packs, and then within the first two kilometres, they're separated. So, you know, it's being able to get off the bike and go run to a 240-kilometre, uh, you know, and to be that quick to get yourself away from everybody else and into that league group and then maintain it. It is super hard. And when you've got Gomez and you've got Brownlee, who are running sub-30 minute off-the-bike races, becomes really, really crucial that you are able to at least make the first selection in the first 5Ks, and then hopefully you've done enough damage to hold on, because everybody's on limit, and everybody's on the river too when they run these races. But, you know, for Royal, it's a, it's a nice thing, because he now has the luxury of a full year to get himself ready mentally and to get himself ready physically. And uh, talking to uh, his camp this week, they're, uh, they're obviously over the moon, the fact that he has now this ability to just fine-tune what he's got going on, and, and that's crucial, guys. You know, last Olympics in London, they were picking them. Uh, they delayed the uh, the selection, and they were picking them uh, six or seven weeks out, which is just it's beyond ludicrous. Well, what about for Gomez and the Brownleys? What, what, what are they... They've got to have some weaknesses, haven't they? Uh, it would be if they get a mechanical group. That's about really? it. Really? No, there is no weakness. The Gomez... The Gomez train is phenomenal. When he gets started, uh, he's so hard to stop. They, they, they just swim too well. They get out with the front group. They're aggressive on the bike. The Brownleys are aggro. They're such fun guys to watch race. They're, you know, if you believe everything you should on online, which I do, everything I read online has got to be true, they paint this picture of this, you know, really hard, scrappy kind of two guys who aren't glamorous at all. They don't go to, you know, the fancy training camps and things like that. They just get it done and they're tough. And Gomez has learned over the last three or four years as well that he's got to put a foot on the throat, and when he does, he doesn't ease up, and then that's how they race. And then, again, we're going to see that battle again. We saw it in London, and it looks like it's shaping up for that battle again. And everybody else, to be honest with you, boys, everybody else is going to be watching uh, what happens, and merely being spectators because no one at the moment has the legs to really go uh, past any of them. What about some psychological warfare? There's I mean, a few hand grenades lobbed across from uh, the Australian team, you know, of uh, you know, putting some pressure perhaps on, on those guys. You know, it's, it's, it's like taking on a howitzer with a pea shooter. Oh, you nailed it, Phil. You, you, you get me every time. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why you do it. I, I, look, I, and, you know, being, taking my, my rider hat off and putting my, you know, my... my patriotic hat, of course we want to see Australians do well, we just don't have the firepower, you know the last fast runner we had in the sport was Brad Carterfeld who took out the uh, Commonwealth Games in Melbourne and, and he was considered at the time one of the premier runners in the sport, since then we've had nobody, nobody really do uh, the run times that we need Courtney Atkinson can bike and uh, swim and bike with these guys but no one can get near them and, and that's going to be I guess uh, the trick is how well how well you run and, uh, and, and throwing psychological bullets at the Brownleys oh man <laughs> you're a brave person I tell you no I, you're exactly right and listen I want, while we've got you here we want to also talk about the Pro Triathlon Union as well. Um, I, I was trying to explain to Rupert off-air what this entails. Um, you've got a firm grasp on this. You've seen these unions come and go. Phil, explain it to the Water Ride listeners. Yeah, 
And me. <laughs> Look, it's, this is version 4.0 of what they've tried to do. It's essentially just getting all the athletes together, all the triathletes together and saying, hey, we're going to form a union. And as part of that, there's going to be set standards and there's going to be a world ranking based on money. And a lot of this was fleshed out in Bahrain last year when they sat down before the, the first part of the Triple Crown and they talked about what do you want and the, what the athletes want and what are the pros wanted. And we had the cream of the crop there. We had the Fredinos, the Kinlays, the Risk. We had everybody there talking. And they all said we want a, a world ranking based on money and we want to actually try and form some sort of union and more importantly have some sort of standard. So this has been formed. They've actually got people on the payroll, which is a really positive thing because, you know, it will last only so long and in previous incarnations people were getting paid two bucks and a burrito and they were basically giving what they were getting paid. Now this is a legitimate union apparently. Challenge, which is the big race organisers, they've come on to say if you're not part of this, then you can't race as a pro. Which I kind of find a bit bizarre because I thought voluntary unionism was in some countries illegal. So I don't know how they're going to skirt that. But it all points to triathlon trying to pull its socks up and become more professional. And I think, guys, everybody can at least get on board with that because there are 1,800 apparently professional triathletes in the uh, in the world at the moment. And I've got to tell you, the standards for becoming a pro triathlete are a joke. Federations need to tighten up. They need to make sure that if you're a Triathlon Australia, USA Triathlon member or what have you, there needs to be rigorous application of uh, entry data for you to become a professional. Not just everyone can come. Now, boys, I play off 15 or 16 in golf. I'll never play a PGA round as much as I want to. However, translate that to a triathlon, I could probably be a pro. And that's sad. Yeah, that's, yeah. you bring up a good point. That said, Rupert Guinness just qualified... Um, as a pro triathlete uh, the other day. So. My license just went in. Sorry, Phil. No, I'm just kidding. Well, just kidding. Congratulations, Rick. You're now, uh, we'll see you on the start line in Kona. We, we, we've probably been a bit light on about it, but uh, no, the Federation have a lot to answer for. No, actually, make, Phil, make I, I, I'm with you on that in, 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 uh, across the board because it is act, it's actually uh, protecting the integrity of being a professional athlete. I mean, uh, we see that in many other professions just where, where's, you know... Uh, you know, qualifications, you know, they have to mean something and you have to qualify for something. You have to be legitimate in something before you can be something and uh, I think you've, you've nailed it on the head and, and it's, only, it's, it's only the best thing for a professional triathlon, I think, and for them for themselves. We'd have to. It just means we're going to get better racing, we're going to get a better standard of racing and, and people have thrown up, oh, what happens if you're injured? Well, that's sport, you know? Like, mm. if you get injured in any sport around the world, your ranking slips. That's just how it works. If you've got to fight your way back in, that's just sport. No one's twisting your arm to become a professional at anything. And triathlon is amateur hour when it comes to this kind of thing. It's, it's, it's horribly amateur. The races they run are amateur. The fact that the women's race gets impeded by the men's age groups and all that kind of thing is amateur hour. The fact that there's inequality, Kona is amateur hour. I mean, there's a lot of things going wrong with the sport. And let's hope that this pro triathlon union uh, will actually start to just make things more uniform and have people have that, that conversation to get it started. And, you know, think about the ASP and, and, and surfing and, and think about where that was 10 or 15 years ago and, and where it is now. There's no reason why triathlon cannot emulate what has gone on in that sport because uh, the sport of professional surfing now is legitimately professional with legitimate standards and a legitimate governing body. And, uh, you know, while triathlon doesn't have a governing body, which is a huge problem, uh, this is probably the next best thing to it. You know, Phil, we, we, we're, this is our first show back since the Tour de France, so it's a bit of a Tour de France theme. Now, I know for a fact that you were, 
you were giving your keen insights as well. You mentioned Kathy Watt earlier, so you, you're very astute on your cycling knowledge, but you were covering the Tour de France as well there at, uh, in, in Melbourne for SEN. Uh, can you give us your take on how the Tour uh, panned out? Did it, did it, you know, is it what you expected? Uh, yes, I did. I did a little bit of work on SEN. This is—I think I've done eleven tours as reporting uh, for those guys. And to be honest, guys, for mine this was—and and Rupert, you obviously uh, on the ground. For mine, the course was one of the best courses I've seen in a while. It had a little bit of everything. I didn't think we saw a lot of just you know long, boring stages. I think every stage we saw there was a story unfolding more so than in recent years. And I, you know, I love the uh, the stage where they didn't have our spectators, and I love the fact that you know they had cobbles back in there because it was just a nervous time. And, you know, it was nice not having a time trial outside of the, the very opening stage, and the team time trial uh, was also exciting as well. I really liked what Christian Prudhomme has done in the, in the Tour de France and actually going out and thinking through the course and the course management. I think it's a huge tick for the ASO to get that right and, uh, and to make it exciting. And, you know, yep. we didn't have to watch thousands and thousands of kilometres. I know they got to 3-3 three, three or something, and it, that seemed like a blink of an eye in, in how productive each stage was. Well, you know, actually, Phil, it's exactly what you're saying about the Olympics course. You know, you can you can make a course exciting and um, and, you, and, and you, you don't make a course too hard where the riders won't race it or the triathletes won't, you know, be, be won't race it. They want to be tempted. They want to be lured into being able to think, I can, I'm going to take a risk here and you know what? I could get, you could pay dividends. It may not, but it's worth taking the risk. And that's what Christian Prudhomme's doing now. He's giving, you know, riders... Of, of various capabilities and, and uh, strengths, the opportunity to use that a certain stage or a certain number of stages throughout the whole three weeks to try and win the tour. And uh, as you said about the uh, the Rio course, you know, if there's a hill there, there's an opportunity there for someone to think, I'm going to take a risk here, all or nothing. Be willing to lose something to win it. And uh, uh, that's what Prudhomme's doing, and I think it's great. And it's great for us, the audience and everyone following it. Yeah, and I hope you gave Peter Sagan a bit of a cuddle afterwards, Rick. I mean, that poor guy seemed to be that close all the time. I know he took away a jersey, but, uh, yeah. yeah, I know he uh, he looks so close so many times, and he's an exciting prospect, obviously, uh, one who's just continually building his resume. But uh, yeah. given the uh, the comments from his uh, team manager earlier in the season about pay, et cetera, yeah. I was really, you know, just trying to get him across the line to get a win, just kind of get turn around and say, yeah, man, you know, I'm here. But uh, there were some really good moments and there were some really average ones as well with the, the fallout for Froome and stuff. And, and now I guess everybody holds their breath and hopes that we're going to get uh, a nice clean response from uh, from what's going on there. But essentially, uh, it's exciting times and exciting for Australia too with Richie Porteen to BMC and, and maybe now uh, forging a new reputation. If Van Garderen can uh, just ease out of the way a little bit, we'll uh, see what Richie's capable of with the full support of a team behind him at a big race. And again, we might be getting excited group in the third week of the Tour in July. Well, it's always exciting times when we have Phil Rogner from First Off the Bike on What a Ride. Phil, thank you so much for uh, joining us again today. Where can we find you? Uh, well, we, you know what? We, we're bunkering down at the moment because it's about to get very, very hectic. It's the world title uh, time coming up, and uh, at the moment we're deep in our 70.3 Worlds and Kona coverage, so we're in the bunker at the moment uh, knocking out some content to, uh, to come out in the next few weeks. Well, I know one thing that you guys did quite well during the month of July, and for our listeners that didn't have a chance to see it, stop by firstoffthebike.com. They did a stage-by-stage, um, the best bike legs, the 21 best bike legs in triathlon. 
How cool is that? Yeah, how cool is that? <laughs> so if you haven't had a chance, go buy First Off the Bike. Check it out. Phil, always a pleasure, mate. Thank you. Take care, Phil. Anytime, boys. Rube, Phil Just It doesn't get any better. I, I, gee, I learn a lot from Phil every time we hear from him. I didn't know about you know uh, two dollars and a burrito for uh, pro race. I would have if I was a pro triathlete in my time, I would have just taken the burrito. Yeah, because actually triathlon wasn't a pro sport back in your day. <laughs> no, but a burrito was worth quite a lot then. Yeah, it, it is for sure. Yeah. You know, one of the things that he mentioned, Courtney Atkinson, a friend of ours, yes. who ended up finishing I think forty second, whatnot, um, behind mm-hmm. uh, obviously Aaron Royal yeah. as the top Australian at seventh. And I'm gonna get. I'm not gonna even dare recite the, the places of these other two, but it was Fisher and it was Bailey and Fisher, second and third, then uh, Atkinson and then uh, I believe a DNF for uh, Burkwistle, who I I actually I, I tipped for Tokyo twenty twenty. But I did get a message oh, so from you you're just covering yourself there uh, too. You there you go tip for twenty twenty. Mm-hmm. I did hear from Courtney Atkinson who did uh, land back in Australia yeah. yesterday and he did say Look, it was uh, a bit of the the travel. It was a bit of the the, the hemisphere, the change, the night and day, the time change. And uh, look, he's still motivated. He still feels very confident about his form. And this is not the first time he has missed an Olympic Games on the first qualification. And by the way, he's gone twice already. But can he? Uh, but the pressure's on him now. Can he? I mean, I put pressure on him in Melbourne Ironman, and you did, and you, and you cracked him. So yeah, I mean, beat him, yeah. so. <laughs> Handicap, of course, two-hour handicap, as we spoke before. But no, seriously, is, is Courtney up there to to do it? I mean, is he, is he in the right... I'm not questioning his mindset, his frame of mind or whatever. I just think, you know, uh, has he still got that same spirit of They're enjoying the, the journey there, the old thing? I think we'll see. I think uh, when talking I love to it. Courtney, I love, it. I love no, seeing old blokes Absolutely. Well. In talking to Courtney, he still has that drive. And, and I think he does. I, I think that the thing is that when you get to a level in the sport of triathlon like Courtney Atkinson, there are a lot of outside demands on your yeah. time. And, and, and whereas I think Aaron Royal and those guys, they're only focusing. They only have to worry about the Olympic Games. And by the way, Aaron Royal, a fellow Wollongong wizard, with Gwen Jorgensen, the American. Uh, it's a group, yeah. and I think we've talked about it in the past. I know you've written about it, I've written about it. The Gong Wizards are 13, 14 global triathletes, yeah. predominantly in, in New Zealand, Australia, US, and Canada, that are being coached by one Jamie Turner, who is a Kiwi coach, who happens to be a former triathlon Australia coach, who now coaches for triathlon Canada. There we go, the Australian way we lose the coaches. And listen, still talking about triathlon before we go to our break and go back to cycling. Um, a, a sad story, close to home. Not not, not such a, a happy ending as, as Mick Fanning as of yet. But uh, one of uh, one fourth of the Belarus, mm-hmm. uh, four women, um, who four triathletes, Sydney-based triathletes, who competed in the race across America, the ultra cycling marathon event. Um, three or four weeks ago, um, and not only won, but broke a 19-year yeah. record. Yeah. Um, she was involved in a tragic accident in Sydney the other day. Um, she she has been in, a, in an induced coma the last couple of days. She was running on the Anzac Bridge, from what I understand, and a cyclist uh, bumped into her or, or crashed into her along the way. 
Um, there is some head trauma there for sure. Um, I did get an update just before we went on air that she has been stabilized. She's, been, she's breathing on her own. She's doing quite well, and the signs are all positive. So our thoughts and prayers are going to Sarah Matthews exactly. uh, of yeah. the Belarus. Yep, and, and all her family and her teammates and support staff of the Belarus. I mean, they did do a fantastic job over there, didn't they? But more importantly, that, you know, she, she, that her uh, recovery is as positive as possible. And, uh, and as unfortunately, as always, just a reminder just to sort of be careful out there. You don't know, you can be on the road, on the footpath, you can be anywhere, but just to, uh, if there's a chance to see something else or if you see somebody else in a, in a, in a position of potential um, danger, there's nothing wrong than just a, a call or a help or a tap on the shoulder. Absolutely. Get well, Sarah. We are with you here at Wonder Ride. In the meantime, one quick break. We come back. we got two more seconds left. Yay! We're back to cycling. Wonder Ride. And uh, more Wonder Ride.
And we're back with more What a Ride with Rupert Guinness and Aaron S. Lee. Rupe, we just talked uh, triathlon. We had Phil Rockner on the line. Um, let's transition. Let's go back to Tour de France. You had a chance to catch up with the Orca Green Edge sports director, Maddie White. Maddie White's been on the show before. Um, he's a good friend to, to What a Ride. Uh, talk to us a little bit. Set this up before we head off to the interview. Well, look, uh, I, I waited a few days after the Tour de France finished because, you know, it's easy, you know, when, once the race is over, emotions are high and people are tired. And I just thought, give him a couple of days before I want to go back and so get him to sort of reflect a little bit on, on the Tour de France. Coincidentally, just so happened, a couple of days became like a week. And Orihu Greenwich jagged the win with uh, Adam Yates winning Classica San Sebastian. But Matt White did say... My last time I saw him in, in Paris, he did say, keep an eye on Adam Yates, he'll be right for the uh, Classica. And as we saw the way he rode, he rode. He was riding very strongly. He was finishing the tour stronger than he started, or he was finishing it strongly. I don't mean to say that he started not, not strongly. But um, anyway, so it's kind of interesting. That, you know, I spoke to Matt about that performance there. There was obviously a little bit of the political side of sports came into the Classic of San Sebastian because Greg Van Avermaet, who was leading the race at the time, got hit by a motorbike. There was conjecture as to whether Greg Van Avermaet should have uh, won the race or not, or could have. BMC were understandably upset, but they felt that he was robbed. But as evidence has shown that uh, Adam Yates was very close behind Greg Van Avermaet at the time of the crash. So that's all open to conjecture. I think certainly that, uh, as unfortunate it is for Greg Van Avermaet that he crashed. Um, nothing should be taken away from Adam Yates's uh, win. But on top, looking back, we just look back at the tour. We look back at the Michael Matthews and uh, you know his, his how he persevered to finish the tour. How Oracle Greenwich continued their tour after losing three key riders on stage two or in the aftermath of stage two and that big crash. Uh, it's interesting, you know, uh, insight there and. Uh, Matt White's a, a regular, uh, you know, uh, team a mem- team member of ours. I like to call him. Absolutely. And uh, he's got some other views. And you know, I reckon our next show we'll, we'll probably touch base with him again as to what's happening for the future. But here's some uh, interesting uh, insights and views from Matt. Absolutely. Let's go to Matty White now. Well, we spoke to Matt White, the uh, head sports director of the uh, Orica Green Edge team, during the Giro d'Italia in the lead up to the Tour de France. And we're speaking to Matt White again now. The uh, Tour de France is behind us and it's been an exciting race. But uh, it's only been a few days since. And um, Matt, please tell us, you did give us a a tip at the end of the tour that we should keep an eye on Adam Yates with the view to San Sebastian. And obviously he's won the classic of San Sebastian since. So were you a good tipster or was it really on the cards that he would come up with a result? Look, I think it's a combination of the two. I think I think I know athletes pretty well, but uh, and that's probably the key. That uh, I could see that both Yates brothers were, you know, had, had different Tour de France's uh, for different reasons. But look, if you look back at last year's San Sebastian, uh, Adam as a neo pro with no Tour de France in his legs uh, crashed three kilometres from the finish in the front group of five, uh, and he was he really had a bone to pick and wanted to make a statement uh, this year's San Sebastian. 
and look, the way I could see him going in sense of action, the way he rode him just for stages, he was, he was either up for a stage win or he was sort of recovering, enabled him to come out of the tour very, very well. But still, at 22 years of age, to come out of the tour six days later and, and win a classic like that is very, very impressive. So, yeah, it's uh, no real surprise that he won, but actually it's... Uh, yeah, a pleasant surprise that actually got the job done. Because it's one thing of having plans, but another thing to have athletes with important, credible results like that off. Yeah, look, I, we, we, I guess a lot of people saw the um, unfortunate crash of uh, Greg Van Avermaet, who also uh, attacked, uh, you know, on, on the final hill there when um, the motorbike was involved. But I think we've seen photo evidence that uh, Adam wasn't very far behind at the time. Obviously, there was, a, there was a little bit of politics afterwards. BMC Van Avermaet's team were disappointed, but has has the calm has there been calm since then? I mean, and what's the team's Oracle Green Edge's viewpoint on BMC's response? To that. Yeah, look, there has been there has been calm, and I suppose the the biggest calm uh, came from actually the athlete who was uh, most affected, and that's great phenomenon. Yeah, I think athletes uh, and staff get a little bit carried away in the heat of the moment, and I suppose some of the comments were from BNC you know, saying they would have won and would have finished first and second. Uh, when, you know, when an athlete attacks eight kilometres in the finish, were were a little bit. Uh, a little bit, uh, what can I say there? A little bit, yeah, a little bit of a luxury. You know, no, nothing's over till it's over. And like you said, those, those photos. Yeah, Greg, Greg did attack first. Adam was very was going after him. And to presume, to presume uh, that your know, athletes would finish first and second is a bit rich. But look, at the end of the day, people are under different pressures, and especially after the finish. And uh, look, Greg, Greg apologised to Adam and, and did credit him with the win, and he should have. At the end of the day, accidents do happen, and we we draw the brunt, we draw the big brunt of those accidents in the Tour de France. And uh, and at the end of the day, Adam soloed away from some of the best riders in the world, uh, Alberto Gilbert, to win Classic of San Sebastian. And there's no uh, no. No, nothing should be taken away from that victory, that's for sure. And, and well, you do mention about crash, crashes and misfortunes. I mean, uh, for a lot of teams, including yourself, that's how the Tour de France began with uh, with that massive crash on uh, stage two, which took out basically three of your riders, reducing you to six riders. And for a lot of people, may not understand how hard that is for a team to lose three riders so early on in the Tour de France. And then not only does it realign uh, what your goals and objectives are, but it certainly reduces your manpower. Yeah, definitely. And not only was it three riders, but it was three crucial riders. Now, Simon Gerrans is obviously the leader of our team. Our biggest wins uh, since we since our initiation into the World Tour have come from Simon. So to lose Simon on a day that, on that early in the tour was a big blow. To lose Darrell Impey, who's our key lead-out man, obviously another incredible blow. And then also Michael Albacini. He's had some very, very big wins, and on on a day that actually he was targeting for the win himself uh, on Murder Quay, there it was you know, it was totally tough for the team. And then you know, we also had Michael Matthews had to limp through this, uh, a big chunk of the tour with broken ribs, and yeah, it, looked, it, it was an ideal start. And yeah, to be honest, it was a disaster the first week of the tour for us. But look, it's a long season, it's a long tour, and you just got to buy your time. Uh, right when you need to, and uh, look, good things come at the end. And I think, I suppose, San Sebastian was a, was a good example of that. And I suppose, and the Yates brothers, how they adapted uh, to that sort of different pressure at 22 years of age, and how Michael Matthews stepped up to the plate with injuries during the tour. There's a lot of positives still to be taken out of the tour. 
Yeah, because I mean, uh, I think one of the things was uh, I was even speaking to Luke Durbridge during uh, the tour, and he did speak about how uh, the younger guys of the team, um, not necessarily the stars, but maybe himself, they had to take on extra responsibilities that uh, otherwise the senior members would have had and would have uh, perhaps guided the younger guys through the tour. Whereas in this case, um, the guys of Luke Durbridge as a domestic, but as you said, the Yates brothers and Michael Matthews really had to sort of. Um, uh, circle the wagons and get through it themselves, didn't they? They, they did, and, and those, those four riders that you're talking about are, are all 24 years and under. So they, we, you know, we're left with six riders after two days, and four of the six are 24, year old, 24 23 and 22 year olds. So it's, it's an experience that for the future that I think is going to be beneficial for them. Uh, and yeah, we walked away from the Tour de France without a stage win, which was the goal, but now we saw some top 10 efforts from 22 year olds on, on key mountain stages. And yeah, you know, it's a different pressure without your, without your leaders there, and I think they're going to they're going to they're going to definitely benefit from that experience in the future. And if you can tell us uh, first, just about Michael Matthews, I mean. Um, I saw him several times, even when he got off the bike at the end of a stage, he could, he could barely breathe. I mean, he was, he was having trouble breathing, and, and, and to his credit, he still spoke to us, uh, to us journalists after stages. I mean, um, then he, that was after racing flat out in, in, in stages in the Tour. Um, how hard was it for him to get through that race, and what's the significance of getting to the finish in Paris? Yeah, look, I think... When you're competing for the first time in the biggest race in the world, any setbacks are going to be difficult. And I suppose it's, it's a test of someone's character to how they handle uh, those obstacles. Um, no one wants to ride their first to the fast of Brooklyn Ridge. But at the end of the day, you've got, you've got to adapt. And it was a big mental hurdle that Michael had, got, had, had eventually got over. And there was times there when the Tour de France saw anything he was going to get through. And, and to finish on a high there, finishing on top town, on Felice Day, still not at 100 percent and going for stage wins in that final week of the tour being stages in mountain alpine stage breakaways to help his teammates i think he can he can take a lot out of that in his first tour of france and it's something that those guys are going to again coming back to experience and, and that's what that's what's racing's about at that age 22 23 that in the future they're going to come into situations where you know, things don't always go right but now they've gone through the biggest race in the world with obstacles and I think they're going to benefit from it. And I guess with Matthews, um, one of the possible uh, uh, things that benefits could be come World Championship time in uh, for the World uh, Road Race in Richmond in the United States in uh, September. Maybe that'll uh, not only harden his resolve for the crunch moments, but also the foundation of that strength from the tour could come to the fore once he's recovered from the tour. Yeah, definitely. Look, Michael's getting married now this weekend uh, in Italy, so he's going to and then he's having his honeymoon at altitude. Actually, uh, so he's uh, the, the dedication of the dedication of the athlete. He's, he's going on uh, his honeymoon to altitude for three weeks, and then he's off to Canada to do uh, Tour of Alberta and Quebec and Montreal before he lines up uh, in the Team Stonecrop World Championships. And he will be one of the leaders for the Australian team uh, come September. And yeah, I think uh, he's, he's had time now to recover. By the time he sells his uh, number on again, he'll. Certainly, be 100% recovered, and uh, I think we, I think he's going to close the season off very well at the end of the year. And just the last question about the Yates twins, um, Adam and Simon Yates. I mean, they were there to uh, to finish the tour, try and win a stage. Um, when can we talk about uh, when they may focus on trying to go for a uh, good overall finish and general classification in a Grand Tour, not necessarily the Tour de France, but either the Giro d'Italia or the Vuelta, if not the Tour? 
Yeah, look, I, I think we're going to have to obviously play that body. I think they're, they're improving quickly. I think the, the results that both of them have had this year indicate they're obviously contenders for World Tour events uh, for general classification. Now, we've had some great results from, from both of them this year uh, in World Tour events, finishing top five and top ten. And I think next year we're, we're real, realistically going to be able to go to the podium or not win in a lot of the, the heavy World Tour events, Paris-Nice, Toronto, uh, Tour of Romandy, those sort of Dolphin, those sort of races. Are they going to be ready for a three-week tour next year to go to general classification? That's, that's a million-dollar question. And the, the thing is, the three-week the three-week three tour it's another beast in itself. Uh, those guys have shown that they're they're definitely world-class climbers uh, over one-week races and three-week tours, and they're only going to get better, and that's going to continue for up to another ten years. But yeah, three-week tours that's it's a tricky one because. Yeah, you know, you, you've got to get a couple of those tours under your belt before you know you can actually have the faith in yourself and a, and a team that you can back up day in, day out, handle the stresses of being right in good position day in, day out. And look, we might be as close as next year's Tour de France for doing that, or it might be another couple of years. We're, we're not sure, but I'm very, very happy with the progression they've made. And, you know, you've got to also put that into perspective. They're both 22 years of age, still eligible to ride the under-23 World Championships, and they're lining up at the Tour de France. So it's, yeah, we've got some talent. We've got some gems on our hands, that's for sure. Well, look, Matt White, that sounds pretty exciting to me. I think I'll uh, keep booking my air tickets to Europe to keep following you guys. Um, if I can just say thanks very much for all your help during the tour this year, as always. And, you know, you don't always need to get wins to get a great tour at the end of the day. When you sit back and think about what you guys did, uh, I think there's been a lot to take for, uh, for you know, Australian supporters to uh, to take from the tour, from from the program you've got in place, and all the very best for the rest of the season. Yeah, thanks very much for it. And look, I think one positive as well is with our guys and Simon Jones and Impey and those guys, they might have missed out on the tour, but uh, they're ready to go to finish off the season big, and both those guys are going to be at the welfare and. Uh, and certainly going to be very, very competitive right through to the end of the season. That's great, Matt. Well, look, we hope, hopefully we'll speak very soon about what's to come for the rest of the season. Well, thanks, Rupert. Cheers, mate. Rupert, always great talking to Matty White. What a fantastic friend to what a ride. No, he is, he's never been short of a word, Matt White, but uh, that's a compliment to the guy because he's actually he's always been forthright with his opinions and uh, every, every race, every situation, he fronts up and speaks and says... How he feels. He uh, speaks how he feels. Absolutely. Now, listen, cycling is not the only gig you do. We talked about it a bit earlier. We've talked about it on, on, on previous episodes. But you're in the rugby space as well. Mm-hmm. There's a lot going on in rugby at the moment. Certainly is. Uh, the rugby championship is coming to a close. Uh, rugby championship slash Bledisloe Cup, um, which is between uh, Australia and New Zealand, for those uh, listeners around the world who may not know. What about South Africa, Argentina? Uh, well, they're in the Rugby Championship. Yeah, the yeah. Rugby Championship sort of morphs into the Bledisloe Cup. But here we are at Bledisloe Cup Eve, uh, two tests between Australia and New Zealand. That's the big, big of the bigs. Except after that, there's the World Cup in England in September and October. But just on the uh, eve of the first Bledisloe Cup test, uh, I sat down with Stephen Moore for a bit of a chat. Because Stevie Moore... He's not just your straight average rugby player. He has a few other interests, and one of them are, uh, is, is the sport of cycling. And as I found out in our chat, he had a few views and opinions about cycling and also what, uh, what he drew from the Tour de France and some of how uh, Sky Team raced, and uh, particularly Richie Porte. Uh, what was he able to glean from those performances that could perhaps 
correlate to how he hopes the Wallabies will perform, not just in the Bledsoe Cup, but also in the World Cup. Well, even as a huge All Blacks fan, I'm, I'm very excited to hear this interview. Let's go to the interview now, Root. Uh, I'm sitting here with Stephen Moore, the Wallabies captain, who is about to embark on the Bledisloe Cup series, and after that is the World Cup over in Britain. We're sitting at the Crown Plaza Hotel in Coogee, where the Wallabies have been in camp, and it's just a few days out from the first Bledisloe Cup game in Sydney. Stephen, welcome to What a Ride. Uh, just firstly, this is an exciting time for you, not just as a rugby player, but for you as a sportsman and for Australian sports fans. Yeah, it is, Rupert, no doubt. It's a terrific opportunity that we've all got coming up. Uh, you know, Obviously, the Bledisloe Cup tests coming up over the next few weeks, but then, as you said, the, the World Cup on the horizon uh, coming around very quickly up there in the UK. So uh, really excited about what's ahead and, and you know, what we can achieve as a group if we, uh, if we work hard and, and get it right. Now I know you know you and I have spoken to time to time about cycling and stuff like that. That's one of my passions. But uh, you know I was just trying to think the other night about it, you know, how hard it is to win a World Cup. This is your third World Cup. That's to get through to the final. You've got to play seven games. You've got these test games coming up already. The Rugby Championship just gone through. It's almost going to be like ten or eleven weeks back to back. I mean, uh, that's almost three times a Tour de France. Yeah, well, when you put it like that, it sounds tough, doesn't it? But um, you know, I've certainly watched the Tour de France, and I, I don't think we put ourselves through the, the kind of torture that those guys do. But I guess it's a little bit of a different sport. Uh, you know, c- couldn't see myself getting up the Alpe d'Huez at any type of pace that those guys do. But yeah, look, it, it is a, it's a tough tournament, and um, you know, after being to two two World Cups, I can certainly attest to that and it's it's a it's a attritional type of situation you know you've you've got to get through those pool games first and, and then obviously three finals and uh, but the one thing I will say is is that the best team generally wins the world cup and over the history of world cups I'm pretty sure the best team has always won so um, you know if you put yourself in that position then um, you, you can win it so um, you know like any tournament you need some luck along the way but uh, go over there and, and play as well as we can and be well prepared and uh, I think that'll give us our best chance. As, as the captain of a squad, you know, it's not just about leading the squad on the field, it's about keeping them together for those seven weeks at a World Cup. Um, a lot of things can happen in a, in a day, let alone in a week. Um, you know, it's, it, that can be a pretty daunting challenge for the, if someone's is not the right person in the job. I mean, you've got experience in this. Are you, how challenging, though, is that for you? Yeah, I think the the time between games at World Cups is as important as the games itself. And you've got only 15 guys that can start every week and obviously eight guys on the bench and then the rest of the squad, you know, they may not be playing that much during the whole tournament, but those guys are as important as, as your starting 15. You know, the squad and the unity of the squad is so important over that period and to keep everyone engaged and everyone... Uh, you know, geared towards that collective purpose is, is something that is so important. And I think, you know, obviously, as a captain, I've got a big role to play in uh, making sure that all happens, along with Czech as well. So uh, that's something we've already spoken a lot about and uh, something that you've definitely got to manage as it happens over the tournament. 
Well, you mentioned Czech, Michael Checker, the Wallabies coach. He he's a guy who does look out of the box from time to time in different surprises. Sometimes they they a lot of people laugh at the, in the at the in the afterthought, but they obviously very significant. Uh, there's always a reason behind something that Czech does. But he, he draws on outside influences as well. I was just wondering, as, as a player and as a captain, are there any outside influences from other sports that, that you can draw on that sort of help you steer your mindset through a World Cup? Yeah, I think I watched a lot of cricket when I was young. and uh, Steve Waugh was certainly a guy who I admired as a captain. Uh, very tough, but still uh, you know, very much team-focused and and uh, you know, very thoughtful around his teammates and, and how they operate. And I think that's something I can learn a lot from. Uh, you need to go out there and prepare well and, and play well yourself, but also understand all your teammates and get to know them as well as you can. And uh, you know, I certainly admired the way he captained Australia over his career. And uh, you know, we've certainly got plenty of, of quality leaders in Australia to look up to, and he's just one of those. Obviously, one with a, with a professional athlete, um, any professional sport is such a business now, and we're seeing, you know, I guess we've seen the case with uh, Sydney Swans AFL player Adam Goods, um, and the and the debate about booing and all that, and um, and we've seen uh, other incidents that have happened in in football and rugby. Just on the Tour de France, we saw cyclists uh, who were punched spat at and had urine thrown at. Is is there a point in in professional sport where the athlete per se, um, you feel that their, their, their space or their um, uh, room within their sport or their profession is being in, um, where, where, where the public is overstepping the mark? Well, I guess that's just a consequence of, of the times, you know, with social media and access to athletes being as good as it's ever been, you know, or as, as in-depth as it's ever been, I think, uh, you know, those kind of... Sorry, mate. Like, you're right. That was just Adam Fry, the Wallabies media manager, who who just wanted to uh, not photo bomb, but he's just interview bombed us. I think it's a sign of the times that the access and the uh, it's much more invasive than it used to be, and and you know athletes have got to learn to deal with that. But it still doesn't mean that you can cross the boundaries of of what people think is appropriate or not. Uh, someone feels strongly about something or is offended by something, they have every right to to, to uh, you know, come out and say as much and um, I think you know, as fans and supporters we need to be very mindful of that you know, of uh, that you know, athletes are human beings as well and no matter how close or, or what access you get they're still human beings and they need to be treated as such And just two last questions um, uh, during the Tour de France did you get a chance to see much of this year's tour or you've been pretty much bogged down in Wallabies training? Yeah, the timing of it wasn't great this year. We sort of had the Wallaby stuff was just kicking off as the tour was. I was following it every morning on the uh, SBS Tour Tracker, which is one of the best apps I've ever seen, actually. So I didn't get to stay up too late to watch too many stages, but I watched the highlights and uh, followed that last stage over in Argentina. It was a cracking finish, and um, it always throws up plenty of surprises. 
when you see a stage like that, uh, Chris Froome was going up Alpe d'Huez and he was really at his limit. He was helped a lot by his teammates, one of whom was uh, the Aussie, Richie Port. Um, I guess in, in, in things you can gain out of that is how the, the importance of teammates and never giving up and every teammate being willing to throw every single thing they've got in the tank out there. I mean, that 80 minutes is different than one day of stage racing, but it's still a very intense 80 minutes. That's what you like to get from your players. Yeah, that's right. There's a good parallel there with the teamwork involved and every player plays a role. And I think uh, when you stand there at the start of a test match, one of the things you always say is everyone just do their job. And if you look at someone like Richie Port, that was his job and he did it to the best of his ability and did a fantastic job. And uh, that's a great indication of, of someone within a team environment uh, being very selfless. Uh, and while uh, you know the team was all geared towards Chris Froome winning. Uh, a guy like Richie Port did his job and that helped Chris to win. OK, well, look, Stephen, thanks very much for joining us on Water Ride. I know you've got to get to physio and massage. Thanks for your time and uh, and for joining us on Water Ride and all the very best for the Bledisloe Cup, but especially the World Cup, mate. A lot of supporters here from Australia, so thanks, mate. Thanks a lot, Rupert, and, and thanks to all the supporters out there. It means a lot to us to, uh, to have you all on board. Roop, another amazing interview. You're bringing a great dynamic to the show. Stephen Moore, awesome. Oh, no, no, look, he's a forthright guy. He takes his captaincy seriously, as he should do. And, uh, you know, I, I find it refreshing, though, when athletes can look out of the box and think of other sports and other elements to uh, to life that they can draw on. I mean, it shows that Stephen Moore's not just an athlete. He's a, he's a person who's, who's uh, very astute. But more so, I actually hope the Wallabies do or can uh, give a good show of themselves because uh, I think Stephen Moore's a good leader. And uh, we'll find out, though, won't we? Because the World Cup. Yeah, we will. The and World Cup's going to be upon us very soon. And, of course, uh, the All Blacks always perform well in big games. So, <laughs> But not always. They do. No, they do anyhow, Wallaby fans love to see <laughs> the choke. <laughs> the World Cup choke. But... Yeah, but all, can I just say... All I'm only to, looking forward to the hooker. No, no, I've got to say, the All Blacks, in all sporting teams, you know, I really... I said this on the uh, breakdown on uh, Fairfax Media. All, the, the All Blacks are a fantastic team. They're a team of excellence, you know, in any sport. And I'd even say as an organisation, how they operate, their success... So long is, is you just got to admire it. And Especially when we're talking about a country, a nation of four million... I know, it's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. When, 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 comparatively speaking, Australia, yeah. a little over 20 million. Yeah. America, a little bit over 350. Yes, but before we go, I've got to ask you, mate, the Wallabies are going to be playing the U.S. Eagles Ooh. on at Soldier Stadium. Sol- Soldier Field. Soldier In Field, Chicago. excuse me, moi. Chicago, Chicago, Illinois. Yes, yeah, we, we, we just got to have a final word from you about what, what would that be like and what's the importance of... Soldier Field. Well, I got to be honest with you. Soldier Field is it field, just a paddock? Cow no, paddock? No, it's it's not at all. It's an it, you know it's a seventy thousand seat stadium. It's historic. Chicago Bears, the home of Mike Ditka. Um, it is uh, George Hallis, the great uh, Walter Payton. Mm. A lot of NFL greats have performed there. Okay. Rugby. A bit new there, but I tell you, I'm a bit worried about my USA Eagles, but for the simple reason that rugby in in the in, in the U.S. is a bit different than rugby here. Yeah. It's a bit of a pastime. It's a bit of a part-time job. So a lot of our Eagles have full-time jobs as carpenters, doctors, lawyers, whatever. Yeah. So I'm a bit concerned. Anytime we get into that 
that next level of competition. But with Soldier Field, that the, the echoes of Hallis urging them on, I think you guys could be in for a bit of a fight. But you know when, just a couple of years ago, the All Blacks went and played the Eagles there, and you know one of the local papers, they, were, they called the uh, All Black... Tribune? I don't know which paper, and I'm, and I'm not casting aspersions again. You know, mistakes do happen in, in print. But they referred to the All Blacks as an Australian team. Yes, well, listen, uh, to, to be quite honest... I'm not lying, I'm just saying this is, you know... It, it, I think there's probably more Kiwi fans are upset than... No, else. and listen, as, a, as, a, as an American... Yes. ...giving you a fair dinkum comment, <laughs> I had no idea that Tasmania was not a country until I moved here. So th- there's a lot of things going on in the U.S. that we're not quite aware of. I'm sure Richard Port will address that issue with you anyway. <laughs> he will indeed, as will our friend Andrew Christie Johnson from Avanti Racing Team. ACJ. Uh, shout, shout out to ACJ. ACJ all the way. And by the way, I'm hearing some good rumors about one of their riders, Patty Bevan. I'm not at liberty to discuss it at the moment. Come I'll on, talk to on, Rupert off on. air, but it will be on the next episode of What a Ride. And with that being said, um, Rupert, Great Man. catching up. It's been a long month and a half. Been a long month and a half, but you know what? I'm looking forward to the next episodes, mate. It's been a... I've really enjoyed it. It's been Absol- good stuff. Absolutely. Listen, it is What a Ride. You can find us on the Australian Broadcast Network, on Radio Sydney, 36 FM stations, 200 digital, and hopefully by the time this airs, we've got our iTunes situation ironed out, and you can download us on iTunes. Please subscribe. That's the, that's the way we know you love us. Is subscribes that we download straight to your phone, straight to your laptop every week. We are what a ride. Rupert Guinness, Karen S. Lee. Enjoy. Enjoy.
just like heaven.